Father, I would pray as, as I open your word, just would pray that you would help stir us afresh in how we should be witnesses for you and stir us afresh in the message of the gospel, the greatness of, of our God. And so to you, O oh God, we look and I pray that you would teach us now by your spirit, be with us, help us to see, God, wonderful things from your word, God, help us, search us deeply in our hearts so we might walk rightly with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are cities across our world that are known for specific things, like, like they're the best in the world at it. Like, I think about uh, London and New York. I, I think of these cities as perhaps some of the greatest financial uh, hubs that the world has. Uh, Geneva, Switzerland is known for the, as being the banking capital of the world. Los Angeles, the entertainment center of the world. Paris and Florence, the artistic centers of the world. Jerusalem and Kathmandu, the religious centers of the world. Washington, D.C., probably the most powerful city in the world, as it is the capital, the most powerful nation in the world. Now, what's true in the modern times, also true in, in ancient times as well. There were um, there were cities back known that had a similar phenomenon. Jerusalem was the religious capital of the world. Like it was the center where religion was. Rome was the military capital of the world. Because it was the Roman Empire. Everything came out from Rome. And Athens was the intellectual capital of the world. Today in our study of Acts, we're going to see Paul entering Athens And we're going to see Paul preaching to the intellectuals of that city. My message this morning is entitled, here it is, Preaching to the Intellectuals. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, which describes Paul as he is entering into Athens and um, being provoked by idols and preaching the gospel to the intellectuals of that city. Now again, before we read our text, we got to like orient ourselves again. My aim is if I show you this map time after time after time, you're just going to get a sense of, of where we've been. In Acts chapter 15, we saw Paul and Silas being sent out by the church in Antioch um, to go and visit the churches that they had established on their first missionary journey. And uh, Paul and uh, Timothy, uh, Paul and Silas rather, uh, headed north up through Cilicia and into southern Galatia. Um, to visit these churches and to visit the believers how they were doing. They picked up Timothy uh, along the way, and then the missionary band headed west to Troas, where they picked up Luke and uh, received the Macedonian vision to, to come and join them in Macedonia. And so they crossed the Aegean Sea, and as they received this call to Macedonia, and ministered to the cities there in Philippi and in uh, Thessalonica and Berea that we have seen in recent weeks. And uh, it it appears that Luke was left there um, at at one point. And this morning we're going to see Paul traveling south to the city of Athens in the region of Achaia. And as many of you remember from your history days in in high school, Athens was a a great city. It rose to prominence in the 4th century B.C. and especially through its famous philosophers. Who are they? Plato. Plato is one. Aristotle and Socrates. Socrates, right? These scholars from all over Greece came to study philosophy, rhetoric, and science. We still study and read these guys today. However, by the time Paul arrived in the city, it was no longer the city once was. In 86 BC, Athens was, was sacked by the Roman general Sulla, who looted the city, destroyed many of the buildings there. And, and Athens, at this point when Paul visited, was trying to regain its former glory, and yet it still was a hub of, of culture and, and prominence. And so it still held this, this prestigious place. So Paul's visit there was, was very significant. And so what I'm going to do is read what happened with Paul in Athens. Our text begins in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17, where Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy to come to him. He left them in in uh, Berea and Thessalonica, and he'd come down alone. He was kind of there waiting for them to come, kind of in limbo a little bit. I want to read in chapter 17, verse 16 and following. It says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons 
and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others were saying he seemed to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's not actually far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or Silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined them and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Well, I just want to start off by looking at my my first point here this morning is simply the word provoked, because that says what, what Paul experienced when he was in Athens. We see that here in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city that was full of idols. That is, right, he was agitated. He was emotionally stirred. What he saw did not sit well with him. What he saw was a city that was full of idols. Literally, if you read the Greek text, it says, Paul saw that the city was idols. It's been estimated that there were some 30,000 idols in Athens. In fact, so many idols were in that city that William Barclay wrote this. It was easier to find a god in Athens than to find a man. To find idols was so prevalent. It's no wonder he was provoked. A city full of idols, idol worship all around, and, and the true god of Scripture being lost in the shuffle. So you think about what, what was it that provoked him, or how was he pro- provoked? Was, 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 it, was he provoked to righteous anger like the prophet, declaring God's wrath against those who were doing such things? That was stirring in his heart. Or, or maybe his anger and provo- provocation was, was like that of Jesus when he overturned the, the money changers and the sellers of doves in the temple. Or, or maybe he's just provoked to concern, like a pastor provoked to, to tell his people, just a way of relief. Like Jesus who looked upon the people as sheep without a shepherd, misguided and misdirected. It's probably a combination of that. There was certainly anger in his heart, but certainly he had care and concern for those in Athens who were filled with idols and idol worship. And unless you think that the idol worship was just then with no applicability to us, I, I just say this, that we have our idols and they live deep in us. And we cherish them highly. Uh, read a book recently by Brad Bigney entitled Gospel Treason. Speaks about idols. He, he identifies an idol as this. An idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. That's what idols are. 
anything or anyone who, who captures our attention of our hearts and our minds and affections more than God. It's, it, you know, the, the command that, that God gave to Israel, the greatest command. You remember the greatest command Jesus said is what? You shall love the Lord your God. Help me. With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength, right? We, we just read that in our prayer meeting this morning, which I just encourage you to come to. It's a great time. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5 speaks about loving God with everything that is within us. But sometimes we take idols and we love them and we cherish them rather than God. I just imagine what, what Paul would have thought if he'd have spent time in our society. Would his spirit have been provoked? Seeing houses of worship empty on Sunday mornings while people are playing volleyball down the street. Seeing the wealth around us with those also then hurting in the streets. Turning on the television. What do you think Paul would have felt if he'd have seen television? Or the movies. What if Paul would have gone, just pick a random movie and just, Paul, why don't you go to that movie? What do you think Paul would have thought? Reading our newspapers. What would Paul find on the internet? I, I think he likewise would be provoked with the idols of our heart. The wealth, the entertainment, the distraction from loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, it's interesting here how, how Paul <clears throat> responded to his provocation. He didn't distance himself from those in Athens. He didn't skip over Athens and go some other place. He, he didn't protest against them. He didn't organize some sort of um, a boycott. He didn't publicly condemn them for their idolatry. He didn't move away. Rather, he moved towards them because he was provoked. Yes, they're involved in idols and idol worship, but those are the very people who need the gospel of Jesus as he moved towards them and proclaimed the truth of the gospel. In fact, that's what we read in verse 17, Paul moving towards these idolatrous people. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. I love this word, how verse 17 begins with the word so. The city was full of idols. So Paul went to the synagogues and he went to the streets because they needed to hear about Jesus. In, in the synagogue, there would have been Jews there. There would have been God-fearing Gentiles there. And he told them the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. He, he probably preached the same sermon he preached in Antioch, the, the Christ is Jesus sermon. Christ must suffer. And the one who Jesus is, the very Christ, who suffered and rose from the dead. He must surely have gone through the Scriptures slowly to, to show them passages like Isaiah 53 and, and Psalm 2 and Zechariah 12, like we talked about the last couple of weeks. And, and then was shown the resurrection, Psalm 16 and, and Isaiah 53, how it's necessary that the Christ suffer and be risen from the dead. But Paul didn't just speak to the religious people within the walls of the synagogue. It's not like Paul, in this midst of all this idolatry, just retreated to the, the church building. He didn't just retreat to the synagogue, to the safe place. <laughs> that wasn't really safe for Paul. He also went to the streets. Notice in verse 17, it says that he was in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. He went where people were. He, he intentionally right, didn't stay in the home of his Jewish friends. But he went out and every day was, was talking with people, and open-air evangelism. And, and some of this, I, I'm, I'm sure, was perhaps proclaiming to, to many people, but much of this, I think, was probably one-on-one and just talking with people, whoever happened to be there. Again, setting forth a model for us to follow, being a witness of Jesus, the theme of what Acts is calling us to be. And I just, again, would encourage all of you just to open your mouths and be speaking with people about the Lord being a witness to him. And, and, and if you're secluded in your four walls and your protective Christian bubble, get out of the bubble and go to Athens. Athens is right out the door. There are many people who need Christ. Tell them, reason with them, talk to them, talk to them. Now in Athens, right, some of those who heard him speak were the intellectuals of the day where I get my title of my message and verse 18 identifies some of them. It says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. 
Now, you may not be up on your ancient philosophy, so let me help you. The Epicureans were the atheistic materialists. In other words, right, they denied the existence even of God and, and taught that we should live for the moment. Right? There's no life after death. Their motto is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. If it feels good, do it. Are Epicureans with us today? Sure are. Lots of humanists in our society, lots of atheists, lots of existentialists living for the moment. And though the Epicureans did have a sense of morality, though there are humanists and atheists today who have a sense of morality, a sense of right and wrong. Do you know people like that? Are there people in your life who are atheistic, humanistic, hedonistic? Can you, like, can you put names if not, I just get out of the church and go towards the people like Paul did. The Stoics, on the other hand, like, unlike the Epicureans, were pantheistic fatalists. In other words, they believed that everything is God and taught that we should just resign ourselves to the will of the universe. Que sera, sera, which means what? What will be, will be. I just picture Doris Day singing, que sera, sera. I won't sing it for you. Whatever will be, will be. But they, they placed an emphasis upon, upon reason, thinking, but devoid of feeling, really trying to live upright, detached lives. Are Stoics today? Lots of Stoics out there today. In fact, I, I have heard so many Christian, non-Christians even say this, everything happens for a reason even if they don't have a supreme being being the reason for the reason. <clears throat> like things just happen. And they say, hey, everything happens for a reason. They're Stoics. Lots of people like that. New Agers could even be considered modern-day Stoics. Seeking a spirituality of meditation, mind control. Letting go of the world's pleasures, trying to seek this higher nirvana. Well, it's, they talk with Paul. They were interested in what he was saying. If you look at verse 18, others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because... He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And, and here was the gospel, right? Coming to Athens for the first time. And those in the public square were intrigued by it, saying things they'd never heard before. And, and, and these, these philosophers from Athens were hearing Paul talking about these, these new divinities, these strange divinities. There was, there was Jesus and there was resurrection. And so these were like two deities. Like, like one is, is Jesus, Yesu, and who is that, like Carpenter? And the, and the other one is this uh, Anastasis, this resurrection. Like, oh, what, what sort of deities is he talking about? And I'm sure he got these terms because Jesus is talking about how, how the Christ needs to suffer and die and, and rise from the dead. He needs to Anastasis. He needs to be a resurrection. And this Jesus is the one. And so in their minds, it's kind of convoluted. They were intrigued enough. They wanted to hear him more, so they gave him a platform, literally, to speak. If you look at verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears and we wish to know what these things mean. Now, the Areopagus was a, a small hill covered with stone seats. It was an amphitheater, if you will. It was named after the god of war, Ares, the Areopagus. So Ares is the, the god of war. The, the, uh, the Roman name for the god of war is Mars. So this also is called what? Mars Hill. It's where he went. It's the place where the leaders of Athens would discuss and debate the issues of the day and perhaps even hold trial there. And for someone coming in the city speaking something new, is a perfect place for Paul to come and speak. What an opportunity. Right? I mean, it's, it's as if I was approached by some professors from University of Chicago, saying, Steve, we, 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 want, we want you to speak about, what, about the book of Acts. We haven't heard this, but we don't know what this is, is about. The weekly symposium. We want you to come and, and speak. Tell us about Jesus. Tell us about this resurrection. What a great opportunity Paul had. And verse 21 really tells us their motive. Now the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They're like the, the people who just like, give me some, some brain candy, right? Just I want to hear something new. What, what's the new, right, idea du jour today, right? What, what is it new? And they just sat around and talked, but Paul was going to come and, and preach this sermon, which, by the way, is every bit as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. My second point, preaching. It's what he does. He uh, 
stands, verse 22, in the midst of the Areopagus, and he opens his mouth and he preaches. And his, um, his sermon really has three points. There's introduction, God, and conclusion. So he introduces it, transitioning, speaking about, and then he speaks about God and God and what God is like, what God is like, what God is like, and then he concludes with a, the challenge. Just look at how he introduces his sermon. He's right where the people are. He compliments them. Verse 22, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, I remember my time in uh, high school studying Greek mythology, right? The many gods that were worshipped there were also worshipped in, in Athens, um, Ares, the god of war, we've already mentioned him, was, was worshipped there. But there's also Atlas. I'm not sure if you remember him. He was the god who, who held the world on his shoulders. He was a god. Eros, the god of love. Kronos, the god of time. Hercules, the god of strength. Hermes, the messenger god. And on all these gods had all these interactions and they're fighting with each other and going after each other. But there are also these altars then to all of these Thousands of gods. And some of them had domains. Some of them had lots of power. Some of them had little power. But there was Hades, who was the god of the underworld. There was Poseidon, who was the god of the, the sea, right? And there was uh, Zeus, the great god of the sky, the supreme god of all the gods. Paul could easily have condemned their idolatry. But he turned their idolatry into a compliment. You are very religious. Well, that is super, um, super strategic um, super wise. He saw the idols, saw the altars, but one stood out to them, to him. It was an altar that he could transition his talk to the true God. He says, verse 23, for as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now, apparently those in Athens were afraid they might have missed one God among their thousands Less, rather, they had 5,000 altars, right? Less there was 5,001 gods, whatever. They had one more altar for this god that was erected and dedicated to the unknown god. It's kind of like just, just in case, their, their uh, insurance altar, if you will. And Paul takes this altar and announces the subject of his message. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. What a great transition. Uh, right, well, while the Athenians would have professed ignorance in the identity of this unknown God, Paul now proposes to make this one true God known to them. But, but realize this, when, when Paul stood up there to speak, it, this just didn't come out of nowhere. Certainly when he was walking around Athens and he saw this altar um, at some time before, maybe an hour before, maybe three hours before, maybe the day before, or two days before, something, he said, oh, the unknown God. That's, amidst all these gods, there's one. That's, that's the altar, the true God. He's the one that they don't know about. This is like an altar to Yahweh, the Jewish God. Wow, maybe I can talk about this. And he, I'm sure he thought about this altar as a way to transition to speak about spiritual things. As you go about your life, do you think like that at all? Think of ways to take What's going on, the world, objects, whatever, to transition them to speak about spiritual things? I just encourage you to be, be observant of others. Be observant for what's, what's going on. I think about this season, right? Easter bunnies, Easter eggs. You think there's a transition there that you could make if someone's talking about Easter? Happy Easter. Yeah, do you know Jesus is the reason for the season, right? We're, we're celebrating newness of life. Like the, the egg gives newness of life like Jesus gives newness of life to all who believe. Like there's a real simple transition there. You can even transition from the weather. Who talks about the weather? Everyone talks about the weather. On, on the way in, talking with the Lundbergs, we're talking about the weather. Right? You go, you're always talking about the weather. Oh, man, it's so cold. Hopefully it's going to warm up. How about this? Like, I love this time of year. When it starts getting warm, that's the time we, we celebrate the Passion season and culminating with celebration of Easter, celebrating Jesus rising from the dead, new life that comes through faith in Him. Or how about Ukraine? And if you have a conversation with anybody today, maybe not uh, this, this week, anybody about Ukraine, 
at work maybe, I hope so, I probably, like just the things happening there, you can transition and speak there. Just about the realities of war. How this is sin-dominated world. In fact, I, I transitioned this week. I was talking to someone, a Ukraine came up, and, and he was telling me how horrible things have been as he watches the image and how terrible it is. And he's a non-Christian, does not understand right, the God, the Christ, the gospel. But he was kind of experiencing and communicating with me a, a, a perplexity about just how bad it is in Ukraine and how could bad things like this happen. And so I just used that and I transitioned. Uh, I, I said, you know what? That's what the Bible speaks about, about this world. Yes, God created it perfect and it's glorious. You go outside, you'll see everything so nice. But yet we, in our sin, we've corrupted it. We have destroyed the creation. We have sinned against one another. And war is just an, an example of what all the sinfulness of man looks like. And ultimately, that's why Jesus came. That's the story of the Bible, why Jesus came to solve that and redeem that. And his response was, not much. He was like, oh, okay, I guess that helps. But just I used Ukraine this week to transition that. And Paul used the unknown God to address their ignorant worship. And so after the introduction, what he does is he gives 11 characteristics of God. He just speaks about God. They had a false view of God, and so what they needed was a right view of God. And, and he's got 11 characteristics. I'm going to run through these like real fast. I'm going to put them just right up uh, on the overhead. And we're going to see this. First of all, God is, I hope you can read that. Yeah, if you haven't, sit up front next time if you can't quite read that. We've got 11 of these. God is the creator. The God who made the world and everything in it. Verse 24, it's a simple statement about God's role as creator. We live in a world that would deny this. But the Bible's clear is that there's a simple, omnipotent God who created the world. A single, omnipotent God, rather. It's clear from the very first, the Bi- very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you read through Genesis chapter 1, and He just spoke the words, the worlds into existence. Everything. Stars, planets, animals, men, and women. God's a creator of the world. And it's the first thing that he talks about with these people. They, they didn't understand. They had all this pantheon of God. They were confused how even God created the world. And as such, as the creator, he is Lord, being Lord of heaven and earth. Simply means that God is the creator, the one who rules and reigns. Not Zeus, but Yahweh. Right? The, the, the Jewish God, the one of the Bible. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the worlds and those who dwell in it. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases, and we are to submit to Him. Those in, in Athens may have been trying to appease their puny gods, but, but Paul puts forth the true God, the one who is Lord of all. Next, he says, God is transcendent, that is above all the ways of the earth. He doesn't dwell in temples made by man. Is what verse 24 says. Unlike the God of Athens, gods of Athens who were earthbound, had their earthly domains, were, were weak and, and were like only central here. No, God is different. He's enthroned on high. He dwells in the heavenly throne. The earth is merely its footstool. God transcends us. Not only that, God is self-sufficient. Verse 25, nor is He served by human hands as though he needed anything. What a contrast to the gods of, of Athens who needed people to serve them at their altars. But God doesn't need anything. The one true God doesn't need anyone to accomplish His purposes. He doesn't need us. He has everything He needs. He never puts out a help wanted sign. He never does that. He never lacks power. Unlike the many gods of the pantheon. Uh, Fifthly, God's the giver of life. Verse 25, He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now those in Athens had their origin story. There was nothing. They called it chaos. Until from out of light, Mother Earth just came to be the goddess Gaia. And and from Mother Earth came the sky and the sea and the oceans and kind of everything came from, from her. It's not the true God. It's the true God who made everything and everyone. He is the one who gives life. He's the one that gives breath. He is the, the living God. Also, God is sovereign over our lives. Verse 26. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Think about this. God determines when we live and where we live. It's no accident that we are all living here in northern Illinois or southern Wisconsin, wherever you're living today. No accident. Or for those online in in um, Colombia or in Arizona or wherever else you're watching today. It's no accident that we live here. It's no accident who your parents are. Kids, children, it's no accident who your brothers and sisters are. God places us when and where He wants. Right? Eva? No accident! Yes, Jack! is determined by God to be your brother. What a wonderful thing. I'm jealous. God determines it all. He has complete control over our lives. He is sovereign over our lives. Seven, He's imminent. That is, He is near. Verse 27. Yet He is not actually far from each one of us. See, the God of, of Athens and the Pantheon were off doing their own thing, having spats and arguments with other gods, concerned about their own matters. They're, they're concerned about God's things. They weren't concerned about us and, and our things. Not true of God. God knows us. He knows when we sit down, when we rise up. He's intimately acquainted with all of our ways. He's imminent. He is near us. Okay, number eight. This is Paul's sermon. He's just preaching God. He's our sustainer. In Him we live and move and have our being. This is the reality of the true God. He sustains us. In Him all things hold together. Colossians 1.17 And I love the passage in Job 34.14 and 15. If He should determine to do so, if He would gather to Himself His Spirit and His breath, all flesh would perish together and men would return to dust. See, because God sustains us. He's the one that gives us life. Okay, everyone, everyone here, go. Big breath. God just gave you another gift. It's the hand of God. And not only us, but all the animals, He sustains them. All the people here, all the people around the world. When we're sleeping, He's sustaining us by moving our chest up and down, giving us life and breath and all things. Ninth thing he says about God. God is the source of our life. He says, For even as some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. Here Paul quotes one of the Athenian poets, um, a poet named Aratus, who lived several hundred years earlier. And, and Aratus has said this of Zeus. Here's the little poem. Let us begin with Zeus. Never, O man, let us leave him unmentioned. All the ways are full of Zeus. And all the marketplaces of human beings, the sea is full of him, and so are the harbors. In every way, we have all to do with Zeus, for truly we are his offspring. Kind of very pantheistic about Zeus. But even even Paul just uses this and says, even your own poets describe their gods as being us part of an offspring. And you may have missed it with Zeus, right? But you at least acknowledge that even we bear some resemblance of God. Not like these altars, which are wood and stone, which he's going to get to a little bit. But he's, he's going to say, no, no, we are in the image of God. That God has created us. He's the, the source of our life. Tenth, this is where he contrasts this then with the idols. Being then God's offspring, verse 29, we ought not... To think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. In other words, right? God is, is living. He, he's, not, he's not some idol that we have fabricated with our own hands, that, that we have set upon a pedestal. If ever that God needs to move, we need to pick him up and move him. Even though he has hands, he can't move. Even though he has a mouth, he can't speak. Even though he has ears, he can't hear. It's not God. God is, is, is living. We ought not to think of God like these idols. He's a living being. In fact, remember back in Acts chapter 14 when Paul's preaching to those in Lystra. He says, we preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things, these idols, these dead idols, he says, to a living God. 
made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. God is living and active. He is a being. And finally, I thought about putting this point like in really big, God is patient. Because this is where the hope comes for the Athenians. And this is where the hope comes for the world. This is where the hope comes with those who are outside of Christ with whom we we talk about. The times of ignorance God overlooked. What a slam to those in Athens. These were the intellectuals. These were the ones in the Areopagus. These were the ones on Mars Hill. And Paul was calling them ignorant. God's overlooking your, your own ignorance. This is the true God. This is the unknown God. God is, is overlooked at. And think about how they were ignorant of God. They worshipped, right, not the creator God. They worshipped the gods that they created. They worshipped gods not as the Lord, but God who's were, gods who were weak. Not as a, a God who was transcendent, but they in their ignorance worshipped gods that were like us. Gods that needed us. Gods who had no life and were in no control over our lives. They worship gods who are far away and unconcerned. And they worship gods who, who were in need of us, whom they had formed with their own hands, but who were actually dead. He says, you're ignorant. You miss God. He introduces it, and now he's just preaching God to them. Yet, for those hearing the message, God was giving a fresh opportunity. Despite their previous idolatry, and despite their ignorance, God is overlooking it, and here comes his conclusion in verse 30 and 31. The times of ignorance, God overlooked, but he now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." And the implication here is this, is God's overlooking the times. But listen, right? there's a judgment coming. And he's fixing this day in which he's going to judge the world. Therefore, you need to repent. Because there's this resurrection coming that Jesus is the one who did raise. He furnished proof that what I'm saying is true. Now, there was a little phrase that I skipped. I'm not sure if you noticed that in my Second point is preaching in verses 22 through 31. There's a little phrase I skipped. I'm not sure if any of you saw that. So I'm like, why did Steve skip that phrase? Maybe I just pulled one fast on you. I skipped the phrase here in verse 27. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him. See, see, God has made the world and exposed Himself of who He is, and the people should grope and should seek Him and should find Him. And, and so that's, that's right where He's coming from, and right at the end, when He says that God's overlooked the time of ignorance, now He commands all people to repent. That is, He's commanding people to grope for the Lord and to seek the Lord, that you might maybe find the Lord. Now, I love how, as we think back on my message this morning, of how my title is Preaching to the Intellectuals. How was Paul treating these intellectuals? He was a pretty smart guy himself, so that's to be understood. But he's just saying what God is. Every, Every single one of you know this about God and who God is. You are totally equipped to speak to intellectual people about God. Just that we are his witnesses. We tell others what we know of him. And when it comes to intellectuals, preach to them as sinners. Preach to them as, it's like, not, not using fancy words and arguments. If you're going to try to use fancy words and arguments with smart people, intellectuals, you know what they're going to do? They're going to rip you up and tear you to shreds. <clears throat> I love the story that D. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells. He's a great book, Preaching and Preachers. Um, these are basically transcripts of some uh, um, chapel messages he gave at Westminster Seminary in 1969. He, he says this, he says, I shall never forget preaching some 27 years ago. So whatever, that puts it in the 50s somehow. Where He just says, I was preaching at a college chapel in the University of Oxford on a Sunday morning. What do you know about Oxford. They're hoity-toity. They're the, they're the smart intellectual ones of the day for sure. And he says this, 
I had preached in exactly the same way that I would have preached anywhere else. The moment the service had finished and before I had scarcely time to get down from the pulpit, the wife of the principal came rushing up to me and she said, Do you know, this is the most remarkable thing I have known in this chapel. And I said, What do you mean? Well, she said, Do you know that you are literally the first man I have ever heard in this chapel who preached to us as if we were sinners? She added, All the preachers who come here, because it's a college chapel in Oxford, having obviously been taking exceptional pains to prepare learned intellectual sermons, thinking we are great intellects. To start with, the poor fellows often show show that they do not have too much intellect themselves, but they have obviously been straining in an attempt to produce that last ounce of learning and culture, and the result is that we go away absolutely unfed and unmoved. We have listened to these essays and our souls are left dry. They do not seem to understand that though we live in Oxford, we are nevertheless sinners. And I just encourage you, as you have opportunities to speak with people, don't back away from intellectuals, but deal with them as sinners in need of a Savior and speak to them in that way. You don't need to be super smart. You just need to be bold. To be able to talk with them and speak with them about God. I I tried that this week. I had a conversation with a woman. If I try to describe this woman, I might uh, describe her as Mary Magdalene. You know Mary Magdalene? Okay, I'll help you. That's that's good. She was a woman in the streets. She was a prostitute, demon-possessed, in awful straits before Jesus broke into her life, cured her from her demons. That's what this woman is like, okay? She said more men than you would ever imagine. She looks the part. And I was talking with her uh, a little bit about things, and she tells me she's pagan. And um, I I told her, I I said, you know, the message of the Bible is this, is that, And she was telling me, just kind of some backdrop, she was telling me the story about how her aunt died and she was called to read the scripture in a Catholic church. (laughs) Me reading the Bible? Can you imagine? So I asked her what verse she read and kind of had some conversations about that. And I said, you know what the message of the Bible is? I'm not sure you've ever read it before, but but it says that God created the world and we've fallen and we're sinners. And, And we can find forgiveness through Jesus. And her response to me was, well, I'm not a sinner. I'm not a sinner. I'm, I'm pagan, so kind of like I can do whatever I want, and I'm okay. Just I'm one with God, you know? That's kind of how she, she was. She needs this message more than anything about God and who God is. That's what I tried to do. Just tried to present before her. Now, she's not some great intellect, but tried to present before us a sinner, and she was having nothing of it. Like, you will have people who you speak to will have nothing of it. No, I'm pretty righteous. I'm okay. I'll make it to God on my own. Like, are you going to make it to a God on your own who's the creator, who's the Lord of everything? Who's transcendent and self-sufficient, and he's the one that gives us life, who's sovereign over our lives. He's involved in our lives. He sustains our lives. He's living and active. He's patient. Amen. Well, Paul says three things required, right? There's, there's re- re- repentance, right? Repent, seek God, because there's a day in which he's going to judge the world. If you look there in verse 31, he's fixed today. There's a day set on the calendar. It's going to be judgment day. We don't know when that day is, but God knows when that day is. And he's fixed this day in which he's going to come back. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. And he's going to judge the world righteous by this man whom he has appointed. And he's, he's talking about Jesus, right? Jesus is the one appointed. He's going to come and Jesus is going to be the judge of the world on that day. And he's promised us and shown us, given us assurance by raising him from the dead. That's as far as he got. At that point, he was cut off. We see then finally the response Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined them and believed, among whom also were 
Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, Damaris and some others with them. So it came to Athens. He's closing his sermon. And in fact, he wasn't even done. He would have continued on. But they stopped him because they heard of the resurrection of the dead. Remember earlier in my message when I talked about him proclaiming strange deities? Right? He had two deities. There was this Jesus deity and this Anastasis, which means resurrection. And they thought he was talking about these two gods, like being polytheistic, like we are talking about Jesus. But when we figured out, oh, resurrection, that's not a noun as a person, right? That's talking about an event, more like a, a verb, a resurrection from the dead. Jesus rising. Oh, no way. No way. You're done. Thanks. Um, you can go. In fact, there were some here. It's interesting to see the response of these people here. Some mocked. They mocked at him. People don't rise from the dead. And this Easter season, as you think about telling others this week, perhaps, even maybe inviting them to church this Sunday with the Resurrection Sunday, you talk to them. We're going to celebrate the, the raising of Jesus from the dead. There'll be people who will mock you and think that you are like on some strange planet. Join the club. Paul was mocked. Or you might say that, and, and um, more what, what my response I get from people is I often speak to them is, is just indifference. Some mocked, but some were undecided. The others said, we'll hear you again about this. Oh, I'll, I'll think about that. Oh, maybe. We'll see you. Have a good day. And hey, what's the weather like outside? How about those bears, right? How about the cubs? Opening day. There's anything to distract, right? They want to just turn that. But, but, someone joined him and believed. We don't know how many. We just know that some mocked, some were different, and some believed. And so I, I've told you this before, right? You, you've just seen the pattern, right? Oftentimes, it's either rejection or reception. Here, there's this third category of people who are sort of in the middle, but it really behooves all of us to really think about which sort of people are we. Are, are we hostile? And you're here in church today. I don't think you're hostile to it. You might be. You, you might be hostile to it, right? You might be coming for alternate reasons, but as soon as you get in the car, you're like, oh, Steve, he's just whatever. You might be like that. Or you might be indifferent, like, okay, well, I guess I come. Maybe your kids are sort of indifferent. I don't know, because a lot of parents here, we have choice to come. A lot of kids don't have choice to come. Maybe kids are like, I don't want to come. Uh, you're coming to church. Uh, I don't want to come. And there's a fight at home. Maybe today you had a fight. Maybe it's because you're indifferent to coming. I, I don't even know. But then there were others who believed. We don't know much. We don't know anything about Dionysus other than the fact that uh, Dionysus was the Areopagite. I mean, this is one of the, the intellectuals who was, who was saved that day. Who indeed, Paul reached through by just preaching God and then preaching this, not even mentioning the name of Jesus, preaching the judgment that's coming because of this man who's risen from the dead who's going to judge us all. Maybe there's some between the lines here. Certainly at some point he knew the name of Jesus and, and believed in Jesus. In fact, even when calling the, them, they said he's preaching strange deities because he was preaching, if even you look there, Jesus and the resurrection, verse 18. So he knew the name of Jesus some, and he believed, which I trust is where most all of you are, believing and trusting in the message that, that was proclaimed here, just the message of God. And I just encourage you, as you think about your evangelism, is just think about Paul and his evangelism here to this pagan place, this, this place that didn't know even, even what God was like. He just met them where they were, so different than Acts chapter 2. Remember when, when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he went right to the Scriptures and, and went to Joel chapter 2. And went to Psalm 16. And it went to Psalm 110. And just explained this because they knew the Scriptures. There wasn't a lot of Scriptures here. They didn't even quote from the Scripture. Instead, he quoted just from the, the offspring, from the, from the poets about the offspring of God. Their own poets. So kind of get it, it, it helped them. That's not to say that we should not go to the Scriptures. Scriptural truth is saturated this, but he just didn't take out his Bible and say, here, here's where it is. Different approach. Or if you go to Acts chapter 13, you can see that approach. And, and I've heard many people talk about, do, do we live in an Acts 13 world when Paul went into the synagogue and sitting in Antioch? Or do we live in an Acts 17 world where uh, people just don't know anything about God? And I would say we live more in the Acts 17 world 
And this sermon right here is really a model for us of how it is that we ought to speak with people. Figure out what they believe, take some transition, and then tell them about God and the true God and what God is like. And bring them to Jesus, command them to repent, and trust the Lord. If they're going to mock you, know that God will sustain you. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. If they go away and just say, we'll talk again. All right, well, go and talk to them again. If they believe, it would be great to, to join us in this walk of faith that we have before the Lord. But that's, that's really what it's about. That's how it is of being a witness, to be out there and to speak with people and tell them to come and believe in Christ. Their soul depends upon it. So let's pray. So we're going to transition to celebrate the Lord's Supper here this morning for the last time in uh, this season of Lent. Oh, Father, we are, we are thankful for your, your goodness to us. That you have given us, God, just not only the, the truth about you, but we've, you've given us the truth in your word about this Jesus who suffered and died and, and yet rose again. God, and that's really what we celebrate the Lord's Supper as we take the, the bread and drink the cup like you have commanded us to do. And Father, I pray that you would help us even now to search our hearts. God, that even as we had a time of confession even earlier, that, that we might realize that Jesus is risen from the dead, <clears throat> as Romans 5 says, for our justification, to, to justify us, to make us righteous before you, as we simply believe. Thank you that even in prayer meetings we spoke about Deuteronomy 6. The greatest command is to love you with all our heart and all our soul, with all our might. And God, we fall so short of that. And just thank you that you, you don't call us to perfection in that without offering us forgiveness for the ways we fail. And thank you that as we come week in, week out here at Rock Valley Bible Church, that we, we are just those who trust in Jesus. God, to make us righteous before you. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Help us now even to confess our sins and we might judge our body rightly. That we might eat of this bread and drink of this cup in a worthy manner. Thank you, O oh God, for your, your grace to us. We would pray that you would stir in the hearts of some people in the Athens of our day. God, to, to come to faith and trust in Jesus like Dionysus and like Damaris. God, perhaps even this week, Passion Week, there'll be magazines and there'll be thoughts and news about Jesus and can you really trust it, that we might be able to respond and say, yes, we can trust that. May we enjoy this time together as we feast, God, remembering the cross of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.